Greetings, ocean lovers, oxygen huggers, and fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Welcome to the special Superpod edition of Scanna. I'm Mark Laren Young, author of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, and director of the documentary The Hundred-Year-Old Whale, which screens July 19th at Superpod in Friday Harbor and is being released this week on Vimeo. Scanna listeners get their own special promo code to save 15% on advance orders. Check Scanna.org, our Facebook page, or our all-new magazine on Medium for links. And be sure to check out our Making Waves video series on YouTube, where our guests share their advice on how to do what you can for orcas and oceans. So what is Superpod? It's the ultimate blackfish bash! Orca-palooza! The Empty the Tank Super Bowl! July 16th to 20th, experts from around the world get together to share information and hopefully watch some whales. And we'll be doing a lot of interviews at Superpod for upcoming episodes. Because this is the five-year anniversary of the release of Blackfish, the theme of Superpod 6 is The Blackfish Effect. The effect? That documentary helped change opinions on the issue of orcas in captivity. So that's why we want to do a Superpod special episode featuring one of the event's keynote speakers, Dr. Lori Marino. I've been aware of Dr. Marino's work for years because she was one of the key scientists who conducted the first study proving cetaceans are self-aware and her work has been critical in the fight for cetacean rights. But for most people, Marino is best known as an anti-captivity activist, the woman spearheading the Sanctuary Project, a movement to get orcas, belugas, and dolphins out of aquariums and into the oceans. We met Dr. Marino when she was visiting Vancouver and talked about sanctuaries, Corky, a captive orca from BC, the dolphins who jumped through hoops to prove they were self-aware, and much, much more. We did our interview on the rooftop patio of a downtown Vancouver hotel. So if you think you hear some traffic in the background, that's just because you hear some traffic in the background. Also, in this episode, we mentioned Kiska and don't set up who she is. Kiska is on display at Marineland in Ontario and is the last captive orca in Canada. Also, when we did this interview, there were still 78 Southern residents. Today, when we're posting this, there are 75 and one of those females isn't looking very healthy. Today's episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon patrons, including its only natural clothing, Eagle Wing Whale Watching Tours, Naomi Devine, David Bloom, and Howie Siegel. And now, here's Cetacean Champion, Dr. Lori Marino. It's rolling round the bend And I ain't seen the sunshine Since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on So, can you talk us through the Sanctuary Project? Like, what, what the goal is, what you're looking for you know, what happens? Yeah, so the, the Whale Sanctuary Project is about creating a seaside sanctuary. And by that I mean finding a bay or an inlet or a cove that can be netted off, 
and used uh, to house five to eight killer whales, orcas, or beluga whales, or other cold water uh, cetaceans. And um, we would keep them uh, safe and healthy for the rest of their life. So it would be a retirement facility for them. Uh, just the way elephant sanctuaries and chimpanzee sanctuaries and others exist for land animals, we'd be creating the same thing for uh, marine mammals, for cetaceans in particular. Magic mirror on the wall, who is the fairest one of all? Was there a moment for you where cetaceans in captivity became your thing? Yes, uh, the moment for me when cetaceans in captivity became, when I be, I would put it this way, when I allowed myself to become moved by the situation of dolphins in captivity was when I conducted the mirror self-recognition study. And those two young male bottlenose dolphins who were so celebrated for having self-awareness, um, they were the most famous dolphins in the world, were living in Coney Island in a dismal, small, shallow, dirty, concrete tank. And then they were sent to other facilities, and both of them died at young ages, so they, they're no longer with us. And I began to realize that I don't want to promote uh, keeping these animals where they're, where they're suffering so much, and made a concerted decision that you know, I was not going to do any more research on captive dolphins. Wow. That's fascinating, because one of the one of the, to me, most compelling arguments people make for captivity is the research argument. Yes. So the fact that you're saying the research research doesn't hold up. Oh, the research holds up. I oh, mean, no, but the research, the argument that you need to make captivity for it's research. It's not enough. It's not compelling enough or strong enough um, given what these animals go through in concrete tanks. I, I don't think it's reason enough. I think we've learned a tremendous amounts about dolphins and whales from experiments and studies done in captivity. Uh, but one thing we've clearly learned as well is that they cannot thrive in these environments and it's, it's just not worth uh, sacrificing the health and well-being and lives of these animals. Do you feel it's sort of to go for a human equivalency like solitary confinement? Oh. It's clearly being a cetacean, a dolphin or an orca in a tank, even if you're with five or six others, is still like solitary confinement. Because remember, uh, orcas, for instance, naturally live in large social groups. These are complex groups that travel together. Uh, they're matrilineal. Uh, they, have, uh, they take care of each other's children. They forage together all of this stuff, they have cultures. And what you have in a concrete tank at uh, an aquarium is a hodgepodge of animals thrown together. Um, some may be related, some may not be. They take calves away from their mothers all the time and they mix and match. 
Uh, and so what you have is just sort of this thrown together group of animals. But that is very different from a, so, um, a social group. Well, I, I know this is one of those hard concepts for, I think, for people to grasp. They literally do not speak the same language. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Literally. Uh, orcas, for instance, have different dialects. So do humpback whales and many other sperm whales, for instance. They have different dialects. Um, and what that means is that just as humans have different dialects, uh, different languages, there may be some commonality, but there's a lot of differences. So they can't communicate with each other very well. And those differences um, form the basis of keeping the pods keeping the groups apart. So they're culturally uh, separated. They don't mix and mingle. You don't reproduce with somebody who has a different dialect than you necessarily, um, that, that, because that means that's a different culture. In captivity, um, all of that pretty much goes out the window because there's no natural dialect. Uh, everybody's thrown in together, and you get uh, what is basically a pidgin language, if you will, which is really just nothing at all. Now, I've encountered people who are, you know, basically like the New Hampshire license plate, who are, who are of the live free or die response to captives. Yes. Where do you come down on that? Is that something you've run into and... Well, we've been criticized for not trying to get the orcas and the others out and then just dump them back in the ocean. Um, but we know that because they're such cultural animals that they wouldn't survive. They need a social group. They need life skills. Um, an orca who has lived in a captive environment for decades, and especially one born in captivity, doesn't know that live fish are food. Um, they're used to just opening their mouths and having dead fish thrown in, and that's not a survival skill. Uh, so we, we want to make sure that we can care for these animals for the rest of their lives while providing the, the, an environment that's as close as we can get to what they really should have been in to begin with. Understanding the, the role of culture helps us understand what we're trying to conserve. We don't have to just have a bunch of killer whales that are alive at the end of the day. We have to have intact family groups. We have to preserve killer whale clans. We have to preserve the conditions that make it possible for mothers and, and their offspring to stay together through time. Without that kind of cultural learning that takes place, we can't imagine that kind of hierarchy, that distinct social organization lasting. Can you talk about the ideal environment for this? The ideal environment? You, you, I, I know you've got a vision for yeah. what the sanctuary is supposed to look like. Yeah. And it's so elaborate and fascinating that I'd love to have you explain it. Well, you know, what we envision when we think about the sanctuary that we finally uh, create is something that is as closely aligned with the environment as possible in a sense, melts into the environment, um, not only in the way it looks, but in the way it operates. 
Uh, it will look more like a, a, a natural uh, park or something that's part of the environment. It was meant to be there all along. Um, and um, it's going to be a place where from a distance you can see whales for the first time in their lives actually swim in a straight line instead of in circles, dive instead of log on the surface, and actually be able to feel the ocean around them and, and explore their environment. And, and just the, what that's what keeps me going is that vision of seeing these orcas who have been deprived of everything that makes life worth living, being given back some of what they need and what they want and seeing how they respond to that. Can you, I know this isn't about individual orcas, but can you talk a little bit about Corky? I could talk about Corky. Um, Paul Spong uh, is on our advisory committee and and he is, uh, I just saw him the other day actually, and he um, obviously is very committed to Corky. Corky was taken from her family group. She's a northern resident, Orca. She's been in captivity for a very long time. She was taken when she was a baby. She's over 50 now. She's living in SeaWorld San Diego. And there have been numerous attempts to try to get her out of there to no avail. Um, so, you know, I think that it's possible that somebody like Corky is eligible to be in a sanctuary, but we have to look at that. The, the main thing that's going to be important is that SeaWorld San Diego is going to be, have to be willing to give up their orcas and collaborate with us on uh, housing their orcas in the sanctuary. We're not going to do that without a collaboration from them. How do you get them to collaborate? Well, it's not up to us to get them to collaborate. We think that um, the, the tides of um, the culture are, are pushing them into uh, a space where they will eventually know that a sanctuary will be a good out for them. Um, right now, they're not doing well. People do not want to see orcas in concrete tanks. Um, and they need to figure out some solution to that problem that they have. Well, we can be that solution. And if they are willing to genuinely um, work with us to create a better life for those orcas that they have in concrete tanks, then of course we will collaborate with them because this is all about the whales. Have you seen Corky? Like, have you visited? I haven't seen Corky, no. I mean, I've seen videos of her, uh, but I have not seen her in person. Crazy. So, you know, Paul Spong is on our advisory committee, and I was talking with him just the other day about our whale sanctuary project and the fact that he is committed uh, to seeing if there's any way we can get Corky into the sanctuary. He's worked with her before, he knows her for decades, he's just dedicated to her. Um, but he also understands that, you know, she's older, she's 
in uncertain health. And um, we're going to just have to wait and see to determine whether she would be someone eligible to make that transfer and whether uh, SeaWorld is willing to work with us uh, to transfer all of their orcas into a sanctuary, which would be in the orca's best interest and in SeaWorld's best interest. As somebody who's been obsessing over the Southern residents, can you talk about Lolita, please? Uh, Lolita is, again, somebody who is living all alone, uh, with the exception of a couple of dolphins in a small tank in Miami. She was taken as a baby. Uh, she, from the Southern residence, we know where her natal group is. We know where her mom is. We know where her family is. Uh, they're all identified and they're all still alive. And there are a lot of attempts and efforts and desires to see if there's some way to transfer Lolita to a sanctuary in the San Juan Islands for eventual release to her family group. Because she strikes me as the best candidate out there for reunification with her family. Well, I think she's a, uh, she could be a good candidate. It really depends upon her health, which is failing. I mean, she's older, and because she's lived so long in concrete tanks, she would normally be a healthy, middle-aged female orca in the wild. She is not that because she's been living in a concrete tank. So Lolita is uh, someone who was taken as a baby. Uh, she's living in a tank in Miami. She's a southern resident orca. We know exactly where her natal group is. I believe that her mother is still alive. And uh, there's a lot of effort and desire to transfer Lolita to a rehabilitation facility in the San Juan Islands, and then eventually release her to her natal group. Now, have you seen Lolita? Have you gone to? I've not seen Lolita in a long time, but I've reviewed a lot of uh, videotapes of Lolita for different projects and different legal cases to try to get her out. It's, she seems to be in the worst of all circumstances of the North American captive whales. Like her, her pool is the only one that seems to fail the minimal standards that the government has set. It's, you know, when you get to the, 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 to that contest between who's in the worst circumstance, it's a pretty awful contest. Yeah, she's in a sub-standard uh, tank. I think they've established now that uh, she's, the tank is not up to regulation. It's too small. Um, and those regulations are not exactly strict. And exactly, exactly. Now, she has, uh, as I mentioned, a couple of dolphins that are let in with her for companionship. The worst situation may be Kiska, who is in marine lands in Ontario, in Niagara Falls. She has been alone in a small tank for years. She has nothing in her tank. Uh, no objects, no other cetaceans. She's all alone. She just 
swims in circles all of her days. She has uh, seen all five of her children die. Any companions she had as a, a younger whale either killed themselves or transferred out. So it's really hard to say who's in the worst circumstance when you have, you know, Kiska all on the tank for years and Lolita in this tiny tank being made to do tricks. It's like a, a contest of suffering. Good morning. The committee is continuing its examination of Bill S-203, an act to amend the criminal code and other acts, ending the captivity of whales and dolphins. Can you talk about uh, Bill S-203, the Canadian Senate bill, which I'm gathering is designed because of Kiska? I'm assuming that was the, what prompted the bill. Well, I, I don't know if Bill, if the bill, Bill S-203 was designed specifically for Kiska. I think it was designed by Senator Moore um, for just the entire corpus of dolphins and whales that uh, are in Canada. It would grandfather in Kiska. Kiska will not, if the bill passes, Kiska would still not be able to go anywhere. Um, you know, keep in mind that, you know, uh, marine land has a lone orca, and then in a couple of tanks next to her, about 45 to 50 beluga whales stuffed into a couple of tanks. They will need a place to go. Um, and then, of course, we have the Vancouver Aquarium, who had two beluga whales uh, who passed away, uh, who had Daisy passed away. Chester is showing signs of disturbance. Um, and I think that although all of those animals would be able to stay where they are, I think that the bill is meant to say no more. We can't do this anymore to any future animals. We're not calling them in. We're not taking them in. We're not adding to the suffering. And I think that is a that would be a tremendous achievement. Would the sanctuary project be able to work as search and rescue if there was an oil spill, if there was some other disaster? Absolutely. Yes, we would be a rehab uh, facility. Uh, research, uh, excuse me, rescue, rehab, possibly release facility um, for just those types of conditions where there might be an oil spill or toxic spill or an individual strands uh, on the beach. Um, this would be a place where they could go and be cared for by a professional staff um, and could serve um, you know, the entire region that it's in. So, yes. <laughs> where, where, where I come from in the north, we used to have exquisite gourmet rocks. Only now, now, they're all gone. The, the single most surprising thing you said for me last night was when you talked about keeping the whales in the sanctuary, and you explain, and somebody asked why they won't just jump over the net. And your answer shocked me. So can you please explain how a net at sea level right. keeps a whale that can jump really high in 
penned in. Nobody understands this thing that cetaceans have with nets and barriers. And right, we're talking about a net at the surf, surface level and down, not even something high. Just They would just have to go right over, or they could just lean on the net and slip right out. All they'd have to do is watch Free Willy. Exactly. They just have to copy the scene from Free Willy, and they're out. They, they will not do that. Um, they just, there's something about that situation that scares them and they will not take the chance. And to give you an idea of how certain I am of that, if you go to places where they hunt dolphins and whales, like Taiji, Japan, how do they hold those dolphins in the killing cove until they kill them? With a net. With a net. So you have a net, a cove, filled with dolphins, panicked, um, and all they have to do is jump over the net, and they don't do it. So there is something about those kinds of barriers that just stops them in their tracks. There was something else you said last night that I just thought was lovely, where you talked about reconciliation and with the cetaceans. Yes. Uh, this is about reconciliation. This is about re restitution. It's about giving back. Uh, you can call it all kinds of things, righting or wrong. But in my mind, that's really the impetus for this, is to right a wrong. The wrong being that we should never have done this to these animals to begin with. But since we have, let's try to undo that as much as we can. Now, why did you, or why do you, choose to focus on the captives rather than, say, the southern residents or the orcas being captured in Russia? Why the captive whales over the wild orcas? I, I, I wouldn't say that it's the captive whales over the wild orcas. Um, I just happen to have been more engaged with the captive community as a researcher who learned about what these animals suffer in concrete tanks, but it's really clear to us that this sanctuary, this project, has to have relevance to the conservation of wild orcas. Um, so for instance, we just brought on board uh, Carl Safina. He's, a, he's now going to join our board. He's a world-renowned conservation biologist. And the reason that we are so fortunate to have him is because he's going to help us build that bridge from the sanctuary where there are captive individuals to the wild. Because this is not about a few individuals making their life better. This is about shifting our relationship with these animals. And that shift uh, will manifest itself not just in terms of whether we keep them captive, but how do we respond to them, how do we re respect them in their natural environment. I love that you're doing that because what I find is that, some, is that there's so much energy and passion being poured into Lolita or Corky or Kiska, and I'm going... And I'm just wishing that kind of passion, energy, and activism could get behind the 78 Southern residents yes. and saving that entire culture. 
Yeah, and I think I think there are a lot of people very passionate about the Southern residents, but obviously, um, for whatever reason, it's a lot easier for people to attach to one individual. But again, I think you know uh, we would really be irresponsible if we did something like this project and did not use it in a way that would transform our relationship with wild orcas. Um, one of the things we want to do is just to do a lot of public outreach and education, not just about orcas and concrete tanks and why they don't belong there, but why we had to spend all this time and effort and money to take a few orcas and put them back in the ocean. What is it about the ocean that's so important for them? And then you expand that to outside the net and people will hopefully understand that. Well, I just keep thinking if we could, this is why I became obsessed with personhood when I saw the work you were doing. I just keep thinking if we could get orcas rights, I know that the rights have focused on their captivity, but you, people talk about the slippery slope of, oh, if we give orca rights, yeah, next we'll have to give it to chickens. I go to a different way. I'm going, if we give orcas rights, we have to protect the ocean because that's their home. You are absolutely right. And I think that people who bring up the slippery slope argument is, are really being uh, pretty narrow-minded about this. I mean, they're afraid that they're not going to be able to go to McDonald's and order their McBurger or whatever they call it. I mean, that's what it's really all about. Um, it's about their own pleasures. Um, but absolutely, it's not about just the orcas. It's not even just about um, the, all the other wild animals there. It's about the whole environment. If the whole environment goes down, everybody goes down with it. And so this is not about saying that sanctuaries are where we can go view orcas in the future instead of concrete tanks. It is part of the process of taking um, animals that should be in, the, in a healthy environment in the wild and getting them closer to there and phasing out one way that we have related to them and moving us closer towards an awareness of the ocean itself. And of course, you know, if the oceans are not healthy, the animals in the sanctuary, behind the nets, and outside of the nets are not going to be healthy. The ocean is the ocean. I know that you mentioned when we started seeing a picture of a whale's brain in a book and that sparking you. I'm curious, do you have any idea what... what I think the book I was looking at when I was a grad student was probably Yablokov, some of the old Russian books where they people used to go on whaling ships, you know, and then take the brains out and photograph them and dissect them. And it was a very old book. Um, and it was a bottlenose dolphin brain, uh, but I don't remember which brain, which book it was. Uh, but it was old. Do you remember the first time you saw a whale? Oh, the first time I saw a whale, well, I mean, first time I saw a dolphin or a whale um, was at SeaWorld, believe it or not. I mean, that's, that's such a sad thing to say, but 
as a child, you know, as a young person. Um, you go to zoos, you go to aquariums, you see these animals, um, and then gradually you become aware of what you're really looking at. First time I actually saw a whale being a whale was uh, on a whale watching boat off the coast of Massachusetts. Um, and that was a great experience. Um, and it, it made me realize that these animals belong in the ocean. But I think the, 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 the strongest uh, thing that happened was when I started to do field research on bottlenose dolphins off the southeast coast of the United States. When I was uh, at Emory, I did some field research um, and we would go out on little boats and find dolphins and ID them. And I remember before that, I had only worked with captive dolphins. When I saw a bottlenose dolphin in the wild, I immediately knew that these are two different animals. That being a dolphin in a captive environment in a concrete tank, doing tricks, is not being a dolphin. That's what's being a dolphin. A dolphin is someone who has a life to lead and is not necessarily interested in looking to you to enrich their lives. They're going about their business. The whole dynamic, the whole tone of the dolphin's behavior was so different. The one in the wild and the one in the tank. Ones in the tank are frantic. The ones in the wild are just doing their thing. Um, I have really hit me hard that these, these are two different animals. As the years passed, he fell into despair and lost all hope. For who could ever learn to love a beast? Do you remember when you made the shift in referring to dolphins and orcas as someone? But when you shifted your pronouns, because what a big thing for me was the moment that I said to my publisher, not the killer whale that changed the world, the killer whale who changed the world. That's right. Um, I don't remember specifically. It was probably many, many years ago, and it may not have necessarily been in reference to a dolphin or a whale. It could have been, I mean, I used to work with chimpanzees. Um, and it could have been in reference to that. It could have been in reference to farmed animals. It could have been in reference to dogs and cats. I know that at some point I became aware that they, they are a who and not a what. And to this day, I still have to fight some journal editors to refer to them as whom and not what. Um, I recently uh, published a paper on cows, cow cognition, and I had the cows who, and they changed all my who's to what's. I said, don't you believe that a cow is a living being and a who? The last I checked, they were not inanimate objects. Um, they're a who. Now you could think whatever you want of that, but they are who. Um, and so it comes natural to me now, you know, to say who, who, because they are who. I'm not sure I could have won that fight with most of the editors I've worked for in my life. That, that was why I was so 
knocked out when my editor Greystone went, we're in, go for it. Of course. I mean, nowadays, to have to convince someone that any other animal is a who, um, it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, we're so beyond that. We're so past that. So I'm glad that, uh, <laughs> you know, that you were allowed to, to, to be progressive. And, and I mean, it, it, there's no question at this point. Anyone who refers to animals as it or what, I mean, they just got to get with the program. I mean, we're way beyond that now. Well, I think it's about distancing you know, makes it easier to look at them as lunch. Of course. Of course. Uh, you know, I mean, especially when you're talking about farmed animals, which I've done a lot of work on as well. You know, you're talking about somebody's hamburger or their chicken McNuggets uh, or their pork chops. And the last thing they want to know is that that pig that was on their plate had a life and loved her babies and had emotions and suffered so that you could eat your pork ribs, or whatever they are. Nobody wants to know that. Um, but you know what? That's the reality. Modern science has been a voyage into the unknown with a lesson in humility waiting at every stop. Okay, speaking of loving pigs, because you, 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 I was, I sort of went Charlotte's Web. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in is I find a lot of uh, people who are in this world had some work that that influenced them as a kid, a work of pop culture, fiction, whatever. Was there one for you? You know what was a big influence on me? It was Carl Sagan. Cool. Um, I was huge. I was was and continue to be a huge. Uh, Carl Sagan fan, if you will. Um, his books were just like, you know, I, I don't even know how to express how important they were to me when I was a teenager um, and, and how his work continues to be now um, because of his example as a scientist who is both rigorous and open-minded at the same time, and who had a sense of wonder, childlike wonder. Um, he was not afraid to look up in the sky and say, whoa, wow, you know? And I actually had the pleasure and the honor of meeting him once, because um, he talked about the neuroself-recognition study in one of his books, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, and he he talked about it in the book because he was very interested in cognition in other animals. Very interested and very concerned about their welfare and well-being and how we treat them. Um, he was a very aware <laughs> human being. Um, but there was something in it that I felt he needed to correct, so I wrote him and said, there's something here, I really appreciate you talking about our study, but it's not really like that, it's like this. And then he wrote back to me, and it turned out that he was going to be in town giving a talk. I invited him to the lab, came to the lab. I showed him the, the videos of the dolphins looking at themselves in the mirrors, explained why it was this way and not that way. And it was just, he, it, he was um, just lovely. Magic. Yeah. Rain had a science question that I, 
I'm not sure if anyone else can answer this besides you. <laughs> so here's the science question. Okay. Do do the different ecotypes of whales, residents or offshores, etc. Are their brains different? Oh, that's a great question. A great science question that would make a fantastic dissertation project, right? Um, we don't know if the brains of the different ecotypes are different. And the reason I say that is because we just don't have enough specimens to really know that. Um, if they are different, they're probably different at the level where we would need a huge sample to detect any difference. Um, and so we have no idea. And the study that really should be done is to look at the brains of orcas who have been captive and who are have stranded and died in a natural setting or bottomless dolphins or belugas and make that comparison. And unfortunately, you know, these, these facilities, these theme parks don't like to share their data with the scientific community, so we don't know. But that is, I mean, if I had to think of a study that I would like to do, that would be the one. Now, I get asked this because I've been doing what I've been doing, so I'd like to throw this to you. Why do orcas matter so much? Orcas matter because everything, every, well, let me put it this way. It's not that orcas matter more than anyone else, but it's that everyone else matters. So orcas uh, matter because they're here. Um, and uh, I believe that they have a right to be here and to not have their lives interfered with. Um, and that interference comes in the form of hunting, polluting the oceans, um, destroying their habitat, taking them from their families and putting them in concrete tanks and getting them to eat dead fish so they can do a flip. All those different forms of exploitation, um, they have a right to be free of that. So that's why orcas matter, because they're here and there are other animals on the planet. And uh, we need to, to respect them. Bingo! Yahtzee! Is that your final answer? Our survey says God! Bing, 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 bing! someone wrote you the check for all the money you needed tomorrow, what would the ideal world look like for the orcas oh and, for, and for the stations? If, some, if, I, if I were queen of the world, um, the ideal world, well, the ideal world would be that there would be no animals in cages and tanks and that we would have never gotten so far into exploiting these animals to begin with. Well, it was nice to meet you, God. Thank you for the Grand Canyon, and good luck with the apocalypse. In the ideal world, would have all of the different species of wild animals where they evolved, um, without human interference, um, and allowed to live their lives. You know, the ideal world is not the lion laying down with the lamb. It is not every orca living to 105 and not faced with challenges and disease. And it is every individual animal being able to live their life, period. 
just as we feel that we have a right to live the life that we want to live, they have the right to live their lives. And uh, that includes the challenge of raising their babies, finding food, um, uh, dealing with predation, dealing with disease. That's all part of life, and you know, they have a right to experience it. I know that you're still looking at dozens of dozens of places for the first sanctuary, but karmically, I really think it belongs in BC. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, right? And so, yeah, I mean, BC is definitely in the running. It really is. And, you know, I think that I could end up eating my words, but you know, we're going to concentrate on orchids if we're on the West Coast, for obvious reasons. Um, but I think that we also, you know, have in the back of our minds, even if we do that, that we can't forget the beluga whales and the fact that there are a lot of good spots on the East Coast that um, these whales could enjoy. And so I'm hoping that something, that we will do something for them or that we will join others who will do something for them. I mean, we, we really just don't know. And again, it, it is like a contest of, of suffering, if you will. You know, who's worse off, orchids or beluga whales? Well, at that level, you know, it's just bad. Um, but... Uh, I, I tell you, I mean, British Columbia is gorgeous, and there is something about this region that seems like it is the vibe. It has a good sense of place. Um, and, you know, a lot of the orcas that are not here um, belong up here. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, Washington State has a vibe, too. It has a great... I mean, the whole West Coast. I mean, it's really difficult to say. Um, I can tell you this much. Um, the enthusiasm for this in D.C. has been overwhelming. I'm this trip and before that and talking to people and just something, you know, just what you said, people feel that it, it should be here. And that's so heartening. That's so encouraging because uh, that means that if we want it to be here, we can make it happen. Cool. Thank you so much for doing this and for everything that you're doing. <laughs> Thank you. In case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. If you like the show, please tell all your friends. I'm Mark Laren Young, and this is the Scanna Podcast. That's S-K-A-A-N-A. -A -A. Spread the word. Subscribe on iTunes. Maybe give us a nice review there so iTunes promotes us. Visit our YouTube channel for cool bonus material and making waves videos about orcas, oceans, the environment, and hundred-year-old whales. Also, subscribe to our newsletter at Scanna.org, our new magazine on Medium, our Facebook page, our bulletin board. We don't have a bulletin board. I just wanted to throw that in. And we'll send you updates in our upcoming episodes, news about orcas, oceans, and the environment. If the show doesn't work for you, I'm Mark Marin, and thanks for tuning in to WTF. 
And if you want to find out how the world fell in love with whales, please check out my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, available in paperback, ebook, and audio edition at audible.com. And if you're game to help us make more podcasts more often, please kick in a buck or more on patreon.com. You'll be our hero. And please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes with amazing guests like Julia Barnes, writer and director of the documentary Sea of Life, our friend Jason Colby, author of the fantastic new book, Orca, How We Came to Know and Love the Ocean's Greatest Predator, and a very special tribute to one of my heroes, Sharkwater Revolutionary, Rob Stewart. And if you'd like to help us volunteer pull this all together, please contact us at Scanna.org. Scanna is produced by Rain Banu, with technical assistance from Chantelle Heward. And now, here's a song from 1965 about the orca who started all. Yep, this is the orca who started the captive craze when he became a superstar at the Seattle Aquarium. This is the orca. SeaWorld Shamu was named after. The sh is for she. The amu was to sound like she was related to this guy. Namu. This is the dorsals and the gatorman with Namu. Aquila was born in the Arctic Sea Aquila whale fed through history Well, two fishermen called him fearlessly And Namu Well, around Namu they built a pen They made it strong to hold him in Hooked up a tug and started to move with Namu well, he started to move about three knots at a time Yeah, Namu swam along, awaiting his prime One swinging wheel at the end of the line For ten days and nights, Namu was feeling fine Namu! Oh, yeah, Namu! Namu is home, always a killer, you'll never more roam, yeah, but don't take a chance, you can't mess around with Namu. Started to move about three knots at a time, yeah, Namu swam alone, awaiting his prime, one swing and wheel at the end of the line, for ten days and nights, Namu was feeling fine, Namu, oh yeah, Namu. 